Hello and welcome back to The Gold Podcast. I'm Helena Beer, the editor of Gold, and I'm pleased to be joined by my co-host, Isabel O'Brien, Gold's assistant editor. How are you doing? Hello. Yes, I'm a little bit under the weather, I have to say, but otherwise I am well. It has been a very good week over here on Gold because we have finally released our latest edition into the world. Yes, absolutely. We have indeed. Um, And yeah, there's a lot going around at the minute, isn't there? So I hope you feel better soon. Um, In case uh, our listeners missed it, though, the new issue of Gold was released last Tuesday. Um, Head over to our website, emg-gold.com, to check it out. Um, Top articles so far, the most popular, include a brand new column from Roche's Davidek Heron, Mm -hmm. a particularly good read, and a look at why mental health matters for patients undergoing treatment for cancer and other conditions, and how how pharma can really support more holistically. Yeah, definitely two to check out. And we have also many other articles as well. So plenty to get stuck into if you haven't checked the magazine out already. We'll link those pieces and the issue down below. So Helena, what do we have coming up today on the podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked, Isabel. Um, Today, we are very pleased to present an interview with Darshan Kulkarni, who is a regulatory and compliance attorney for the life sciences sector, as well as an author and former pharmacist. Yes, he's got a very diverse experience and skill set. And I first connected with Darshan when researching a feature for a previous issue of Gold that was all about improving the experience of transgender patients. And after that conversation, we said we would get together again to discuss the industry more broadly. And that is exactly what we are sharing today. Indeed. And it's an interesting conversation on a diverse range of topics that will resonate with so many different pharma functions. So without further ado, let's get to it. So Darshan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be on. Well, it's great to have you here. So for our listeners, we actually met virtually at some point last year because we collaborated on an article together that I was writing. And I really enjoyed our conversation. And we actually spilled into a lot of different topics that were completely separate to what we were actually talking about. So I thought it would be great to get you on the podcast today to discuss some of those. But before we get into all of that, um, we do like to start every podcast by getting a feel for who we are talking to. So Darshan, could you sum up perhaps who you are, your experience in pharma and what you're up to now? Absolutely. So my name is Darshan Kulkarni. Um, I have, educationally, I have a doctorate in pharmacy, a master's in quality assurance regulatory affairs, a fellowship in interprofessional geriatric care. I was corporate counsel for a pharma company. I was um, a VP of regulatory strategy and policy for a global consulting consulting company. And and then I was general counsel chief compliance officer for a startup out of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I also um, have written numerous books and uh, book chapters on everything from clinical trials to drug advertising to uh, reimbursement to pharmacy compliance. So mostly... um, FDA-related stuff, almost exclusively FDA-related stuff. Um, so so what I do is life sciences. Everything I do is life sciences. I've got 20-plus years um, as a pharmacist, 20-plus uh, years as an attorney, and I'm, I'm in the life sciences, if you will. Thank you. A very diverse range of experience and responsibilities there. 
You did touch on a number of things we're going to talk about today, but the first one you mentioned was medical affairs, and that is where I would like to start. Now, it's a really exciting time for medical affairs, in my opinion. There's been a lot about this recently. I think there was an IQVIA report that came out towards the end of last year, setting out that medical affairs is really going to expand in the coming year. So to kick off, do you agree with this statement? Do you think that medical affairs is really having a moment right now? I guess it all comes down to the definition of the word right now. Mm. And what I mean by that is um, medical affairs in the short term, I think, is definitely poised for expansion because I think um, medical affairs has some incredibly knowledgeable people who can educate people in a robust way because you have scientists coming at it from this perspective of education and scientific knowledge and scientific basis. The real question that comes up is, what does a long-term future look like? And that, I think, is a little bit more up for flux and discussion. Um, as, as many people will know, the medical affairs rule sort of emerged in like the 1960s or so with Upjohn, I believe, if I, if I remember correctly. And yeah, the perspective right. was, um, you've got um, essentially super sales reps was the thought process at that point. Um, and, and that was great. Um, and then you had a um, series of discussions where um, the Department of Justice, OIG, FDA kind of went after that perspective. Um, and you, you then had direct to consumer advertising. But the overall perspective at some point was that medical affairs has to become different from sales so that medical affairs can, ser- can share off-label information while sales is stuck with on-label information. So one is the educational scientific discussion portion, one is not. Um, But over the last 10 years or so, the FDA has lost about six court cases, um, which suggests that that gap may be closing. And the FDA is on, at this moment, dubious legal and regulatory ground in suggesting that that gap has to be as wide as it is right now. Uh, the standard, according to the courts, has to be, is it truthful and not misleading? And, and the idea of, quote unquote, speaker-based restrictions uh, are not something that the courts tend to favor. Um, I think that um, overall, the, the perspective is obviously you have to work within the, the guidelines of the court. You can't be putting out anything that would qualify and truthful and not misleading. The question is, what do those words mean? And the reason I say all of this is to suggest that I don't know, I'm I'm still trying to figure out what the future holds in the context of will MSLs replace sales sales reps or will sales reps replace MSLs is the question I don't know. And right now, I'd say if you were going to be, be a betting person, you'd go, MSLs will replace sales reps. And the reason for that is sales reps aren't getting the access to doctors uh, that they used to get. Um, and, and quite honestly, in many cases, sales reps don't have the knowledge base that MSLs often have. Um, there's only so much you can teach in a, in a concentrated way. Um, there, there is very little replacement for education and for experience. But in the long term, if you can actually take a um, MSL and convert them into a sales rep position, which is what the future may hold. Well, what does that look like? What is the impact of something like that? And it's it's a um, it sounds like a very controversial position, except this is consistent with the FDA's 
overall thought process where they're talking about things like the consistent with label guidance. And they're talking about um, the, the, I think it was like a 67 page memo with 22 or 23 different options where the FDA in the end kind of goes, yeah, I don't actually know which one we're going to do because they don't know how to deal with off-label information. And that's really been the crux of that gap, if you will, between sales reps and MSLs. So short-term answer, I think MSLs are winning. Long-term answer, I don't know. It's an interesting way to look at it, I suppose. I mean, I've definitely heard exactly what you're saying, that MSLs are going to replace the sales reps, particularly because science is becoming that much more complex. But yeah, it will be interesting to see what the future holds and whether a super rep, I guess, a combination of the two. I, th- I think that's that's the question, right? I mean, what I, the worry should always be um, is the patient, is the doctor getting the information that they should and not so much who's giving the information. Mm-hmm. What, what I think is also interesting and no one's really talking about it, it's quite honestly not even on our list of things we're going to get into, get into, but um, the, what, what is the sales rep or the MSL if they're replaced by, by an AI? And as we start getting into those spaces, does it matter who pays for the AI? Is it your medical affairs budget or your sales budget? If it still comes out and represents the company, do, will the courts, will the FDA see it differently just because it came out of one budget versus the other? And I would be hard pressed to think that the FDA would care whose budget things came out of. The question of AI in healthcare is a very topical and interesting one. And it actually is one that I want to talk to you about uh, for my next question. So sticking with the marketing element, we've heard a lot about chat GPT of late. It's hard to miss on LinkedIn if you're on that platform at the moment. So what are your thoughts um, about AI in healthcare? Where do you think it's appropriate in pharma marketing? And where do you think it's, it's less appropriate? Again, it's it's less a question of um, what I think is appropriate or not, because it is um, it's a beast of its own. Um, it's it's not like at least the way ChatGPT three works. Um, it's not like pharma's telling ChatGPT three, "Here's the answer I want you to give." Like pharma can create its own websites, it can create its own channels, but ChatGPT3 doesn't cite where it gets its information from. It just amalgamates. Um, it creates an am- amalgamation of multiple sites and spits out an answer. So it's really more of educa- educating that, that uh, AI. And the question really then becomes, what form do you use? So it may not be ChatGPT3. It might be a company, uh, like it might might be a pharma company who has its own AI on its own website and what answers that th- does that give out? And that's a different question from uh, marketing with ChatGPT3. I think uh, Google right now is trying to figure out what that world looks like when you don't spit out sponsored links and instead you spit out the answer um, because you have less of an opportunity to force people to go in um, into other websites and, and that's how they make their money. Um, so, so I, I think that ChatGPT3 and the like and its ilk um, is going to dramatically change how we, how patients get answers. Um, it's actually reminiscent of what was happening um, 
probably about 10 years ago in that um, everyone was talking about Siri and they were talking about Alexa and they were talking about all these different tools. And Google um, was pulled, I, I believe they were pulled in front of the Department of Justice and they said, uh, and I think it was something to the effect of, um, are you worried about Bing? Are you worried about um, AltaVista? Whatever was was hot at that time. They said, those aren't the ones we're worried about. We're worried about the Alexas of the world. We're worried about the series of the world. And the reason is because they spit out an answer. They don't spit out 10 options. And, and that is the big worry. And it's the same exact problem that you're facing, though in a written format, with ChatGPT3. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose... Another area that caused a bit of, well, could think controversy is the right word last year was Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, social media marketing for pharma was embroiled in Elon Musk takeover in quite a big way when we had that Eli Lilly tick, blue tick account post uh, insulin is free. It was a big deal at the time. The reaction of companies to this was to pull ad spend from the platform almost completely. And this was companies across the whole industry, not just insulin suppliers. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that was a smart move? Do you think companies should be returning? So I think I think Twitter gave certain options and certain opportunities to companies that even now are unrivaled. It was that instant conversation, that instant connection with companies. Um, there is nothing out there. I mean, I really don't want to have a conversation with, say, Eli Lilly on Instagram. It's just not the same thing for me. And I don't want to have that same conversation on LinkedIn because it just doesn't feel like that same thing for me. Twitter was short bursts of communication in a fixed space, uh, which allows me to have the conversation. Now, uh, so so there's a, a huge value to that. However, it's hard to dismiss um, losing, I think it was, I forget how much, what value it was, but it was something really substantial in the billions of dollars, if I remember correctly. It's hard to dismiss and ignore losing that kind of money over someone else um, putting out tweets that obviously misrepresent you. Um, and that is hugely problematic. And I'd like to believe that Elon Musk has got a handle on that, but I know he's still trying to figure that piece out. Um, but are companies going to go back in um, I haven't heard of companies saying that we won't engage. They've just sort of pulled their platform. They're trying to figure out what to do now. Um, the The next question to answer is: Let's say, let's say you are going to engage. That's when you get into the the world of um, what, what of sort of agency, if you will, for lack of a better term. And the idea is that does that company, does that Twitter account represent what I say? And I think it comes back to you putting it out there and you controlling um, your narrative and making sure that people know that this is where my narrative comes from. Because you, in many ways, you don't have a duty to correct things that are not on your channel. You, you're not required by the FDA to scour the internet to find every, pit, every piece of wrong information and fix it because it's just too high a burden. So you find the pieces that you control. Uh, some people, I, b- I believe someone recently called it the Wikipedia rule, if you will. You you aren't required to keep st- looking at Wikipedia con- continuously and finding all the mistakes and fixing them every single day. Um, but but in the same way, um, it, while you may not be required to, Eli Lilly is a use case to demonstrate 
why you should, because someone can misrepresent your position, causing you tremendous damage. Um, and I don't know if Lily will go after them. I'm not sure you can go after an individual for a multi for multi billions in damages for no apparent reason. But I assume that they were activists, and I assume that they were making a point. Um, so I, I think as a company, you need to have a more robust communication channel, identify, control your communication channels. But um, I don't think people are getting off of Twitter or getting off of LinkedIn just yet. Yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, it's highlighted the risks of social media to a lot of companies as well, but it is such a valuable way to connect with patients and healthcare professionals. So I agree with you. I think it would possibly be a mistake to withdraw completely, but I know some companies are employing a wait and see approach at the exactly. moment that I think is justified. But thinking thinking more broadly about the industry's future on social media, obviously this was a bit of a shakeup for a sector that's always been quite hesitant about this as, as a platform. What are you seeing coming up in regulation? I know there was a recent thing that's come out in the UK from the ABPI, which is basically telling pharma companies how to be compliant on social media. But do you see the industry's usage continuing to increase? Um, I don't think there's no putting the genie back in the box. I, I think that companies will continue to engage. And I don't think it's going to be just... Um, using traditional channels. I mean, I think traditional channels are almost, I mean, you, you use them as one of the options, but there are so many more options. I just, I was having, I had people on my podcast and we were talking about uh, this company that has a prostate cancer drug that was doing um, ads. Well, they weren't, they weren't doing ads. They were doing like, I think it was like New York Fashion Week or something. And they were wearing blue jeans. And that was in support of prostate cancer. Um, and I thought that was a really intelligent way of creating a niche for yourself and creating some buzz for yourself. Um, obviously, there's been a whole bunch of conversations around the use of influencers, and that's going to require a lot of um, navigating because mm -hmm. these are, is there a difference between spokespeople and influencers becomes the question. Is it about how much do you have to control the voice of an influencer before they become a spokesperson? Alternatively, how much do you have to, um, when does an influencer de facto become your sp spokesperson? Um, is it just informing people? Is that enough? Or have you crossed the line that moment? Is it purely the idea that you've paid money to someone that makes them your spokesperson? Um, or do you require a long-term relationship of some kind? All of which are going to come into play. So I don't think social media is going anywhere. If anything, I think um, we're going to find new ways to engage uh, I, I, for example, haven't seen Pharma on TikTok yet, but that's not to, I may have just missed it. Huge opportunity, it sounds like. So for my last question today, Darshan, I want to zone in on your specialist subject, which is regulation and regulatory. <laughs> okay. um, and obviously, we've just touched on it a bit there. But as we are still slightly at the beginning of the year, could you give our listeners three of your top sort of regulatory um, milestones that could be coming up this year that they should be aware of? Um, I'm going to expand your question. And, and I'm going to say, I'm not going to just restrict to regulatory. I'm going to expand it to legal and regulatory. And the reason I, I 
do that is um, I think OIG actually came out recently and said that compliance is going to become a is going to continue to be a big deal for them. So expect more settlements, expect more indictments in the space of um, promotional compliance and compliance in general. Um, so expect things like um, kickback issues to pop in. Expect things like um, beneficiary inducements, uh, which don't pop up for uh, people in regulatory because people in regulatory aren't typically looking for issues of beneficiary inducement or kickbacks because they go, that's on the lawyers, un understandably so. Um, so I think that would be one piece. I think you're going to see more engagement. Despite what I just said, I think you're going to see more engagement with patients because I think patient centricity and diversity are going to become another cornerstone of um, the direction the industry is going. I think um, both the um, individuals uh, and companies are saying we need to take the diversity of our population more seriously, and the FDA is putting in some serious effort to make sure that um, you are reflecting the populations you're working with. I think I, I recently heard of a study that was done almost exclusively in China, if I remember correctly, and the FDA turned that down. They said it wasn't representative, which I think is interesting So, because that means that there can be such a thing as too much diversity. So you have to have your studies represent your population in some sense, um, which I think is a, is a fascinating read as we continue. Um, and I think you're going to start seeing more and more information around um, the use of influencers. And I'm, I'm primarily speaking around promotional compliance, obviously. So I think influencers and non-traditional engagements, like I was talking about a few seconds ago with this um, fashion walk, are, are going to become a bigger deal, uh, which to me also speaks indirectly about um, disease awareness. And I think you're going to see more of that as we continue. Um, as a bonus, I think that... Um, what I don't think is going to happen this year, which I think is a, is problematic, but I just don't see it, is the FDA clarifying its position on off-label. Uh, they've, they've let that position sit now for five years, and I'm not aware of any impetus that's causing them to opine on it now, even though the industry's clamoring for an answer. So we'll find out at the, in, at the beginning of 2024, if, you, if you'll have me, how many of these I got right. We can certainly check back in and see how they all turned out. Darshan, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you for having me. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that. So many different subjects and ideas covered and lots to take away for our listeners across all functions, as I suspected. Yeah, definitely. Darshan was a great guest. So thanks to him for joining us. And if you are interested in reading more about the Twitter marketing scandal that was mentioned in the interview, do check out our recent cover feature on the Gold website. As ever, we will link it down below and do remember to rate, review and subscribe to the Gold podcast. And with that, it's time to sign off. We will see you next week for another insightful interview. We will indeed. Bye for now. Bye for now.